All right. Welcome back to Rafa Reading Daily. We are currently reading Thoreau, Civil Disobedience. And I'm going to pick up where we left off at the end of the last episode. I have contemplated the imprisonment of the offender rather than the seizure of his goods, though both will serve the same purpose. Because they who assert the purest right and consequently are most dangerous to a corrupt state commonly have not spent much time in accumulating property. To such the state renders comparatively small service and a slight tax is wont to appear exorbitant, particularly if they are obliged to earn it by special labor with their hands. If there were one who lived wholly without the use of money, the state itself would hesitate to demand it of him. But the rich man, not to make any individuous comparison, is always sold to the institution which makes him rich. Absolutely speaking, <clears throat> the more money, the less virtue. For money comes between a man and his objects. Excuse me. For money comes between his man and his objects and attains, obtains them for him. And it was certainly no great virtue to obtain it. It puts to rest many questions which he would otherwise be taxed to answer. While the only new question which it puts is the hard but superfluous one, how to spend it. Thus his moral ground is taken from under his feet. The opportunities of living are diminished in proportion to as what are called the quote means end quote are increased. The best thing a man can do for his culture when he is rich is to endeavor to carry out those schemes which he entertained when he was poor. Christ answered the Herodians according to their condition. Quote, show me the tribute money, end quote, said he, and one took a penny out of his pocket. If you use money which has the image of Caesar on it and which he has made current and valuable, that is, if you are men of the state and gladly enjoy the advantages of Caesar's government, then pay him back some of his own when he demands it. Quote, Render therefore to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God those things which are God's. End quote. Leaving them no wiser than before as to which was which, for they did not wish to know. When I converse with the freest of my neighbors, I perceive that, whatever they may say about the magnitude and seriousness of the question, and their regard for the public tranquility, the long and the short of the matter is that they cannot spare the protection of the existing government and they dread the consequences of disobedience to it to their property and families. For my own part, I should not like to think that I ever rely on the protection of the state. But if I deny the authority of the state when it presents its tax bill, it will soon take and waste all my property and so harass me and my children without end. This is hard. One second. This makes this makes it impossible for a man to live honestly and at the same time comfortably in outward respects. It will not be worth the while to accumulate property. That will be sure to go again. You must hire a squat somewhere and raise but a small crop and eat that soon. You must live within yourself and depend upon yourself, always tucked up and ready for a start and not have many affairs. A man may grow rich in Turkey even if he will be in all respects a good subject of the Turkish government. Confucius said, quote, If a misery are subjects of shame, if a state is not governed by the principle of reason, riches, and honors are the subjects of shame. End quote. No. Until I want the protection of Massachusetts to be extended to me in some distant southern port 
where my liberty is endangered, or until I am bent solely on building up an estate at home by peaceful enterprise, I can afford to refuse allegiance to Massachusetts and her right to my property and life. It costs me less in every sense to incur the penalty of disobedience to the state than it would to obey. I should feel as if I were worth less in that case. Some years ago, the state met me in behalf of the church and commanded me to pay a certain sum toward the support of a clergyman whose preaching my father attended, but never I myself. Quote, pay, it said, quote, or be locked up in a jail, end quote. I declined to pay. But unfortunately, another man saw fit to pay it. I did not see why the schoolmaster should be taxed to support the priest and not the priest the schoolmaster. For I was not the state schoolmaster, but I supported myself by voluntarily, voluntarily subscription. Voluntary subscription, excuse me. I did not see why the... I did not see why the Lyceum should not present its tax bill and have the state to back its demand as well as the church. However, at the request of the selectmen, I, con I, con I condescended to make some such statement as this in writing, quote, Know all men by these presents that I, Henry Thoreau, do not wish to be regarded as a member of any incorporated society which I have not joined, end quote. This I gave to the town clerk, and he has it. The state, having thus learned that I did not wish to be regarded as a member of that church, has never made a like demand on me since, though it said that it must adhere to its original presumption that time. If I had known how to name them, I should then have signed off in detail from all the societies which I never signed on to, but I did not know where to find a complete list. Okay, and then... We'll take a moment to reflect upon the passages we just read there. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is the stark comparisons between this this letter, this civil disobedience essay written by uh, Henry Thoreau and uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter, letter to Birmingham. And I think both of those things, both of those writings do the work of highlighting the danger of passivity to social issues, highlighting the danger of of not not even just simply passivity, but passivity from people of goodwill, from people who uh, believe ideologically that certain things should be changed in the society. However, they are not willing to take the steps or to take the actions or to take the risk or to do the things that are needed to push for that change. And I think that it's important to highlight that section of people and highlight the danger that that mindset and that that type of mentality has, because I believe that that is the masses and the majority of people. I don't believe that the majority of people are for racial injustice or the majority of people are for police terrorism or for mass incarceration. Uh, just like I don't think the majority of people are against police terrorism or against mass incarceration or against uh, racial injustice. But I do believe that the majority of people are complacent to it. The majority of people are uh, try to remain neutral to it. Uh, and and I think neutrality can manifest as, itself in more ways than just saying you're neutral. I think that you can say you're for something or against something, but if you make no actions that uh, manifest you being for or against something, then 
uh, you can still be seen as being neutral. And so I think we have to uh, begin to speak directly to that group of people who are either neutral in ideology or neutral in action. Uh, I think another one of the things that stands out to me in in reading this too is the the dangers that not not I don't think it's necessarily just capitalism but the dangers that trying to balance individual individualism in the form of financial gain or in the form of class rising up in class status and trying to balance that somehow with wanting social change or wanting to have some type of societal change. I think that one of the things that happens too often is that people want to have their cake and eat it too. And that is the and that that exact concept is what perpetuates some of these societal issues is because if you are worried about your bottom line and how much money your business makes, you are inherently going to uh, buy in to everybody else who has that same type of uh, pattern of thinking. And that pattern of thinking is what leads to uh, these societal issues. So, uh, you know, a lot of times people, just for an example, a lot of times people talk about having a minority-owned business or a black business. And uh, they'll speak about that as if just simply having a black business or having a minority-owned business is uh, an act of activism within itself. Uh, meanwhile, the business that they own is paying taxes to a city that perpetuates uh, racial injustice. Uh, the city, the, the store that they own might be inside of a building that's owned by a, a company that perpetuates racial injustice. Within their business, their business model may be one that is uh, perpetuating uh, misogyny uh, by only having men working in high positions, you know, there's uh, or perpetuating uh, uh, a litany list of other things that could be going on in the society. So I just think that it's important to point out that it's not uh, it's not as simple as trying to make enough money to fix these issues. Sometimes the fact of the matter is trying to gain more money or trying to get more money or trying to be more uh, established in a a certain class system is feeding into the issues, is perpetuating the issues within itself. Uh, and so I'm going to pass this over to somebody else to speak, and then they'll pick up reading as well. There's there's a lot of different ideas to consider with what we, we've been reading recently. And an important point is is that living in a society that there's coercion i would say to conform to the status quo uh and there's different aspects of that when L leslie's talking about how capitalism plays a role in here but i reading this i i see thoreau as speaking more towards what it means to exist in a territory that has a state that this Thoreau has individual moral versions to the things that the the state uh, does, and there's an expectation of him as someone that was just born in this society and assumed to be a citizen that he's supposed to contribute and feed into the system that he sa sees as immoral. 
and when he's talking about uh, how it's it's less meaningful for him to lose his property uh, over over what he's doing than to or what was I getting at there? I mean, there, there's some people that uh, civilly disobey, disobeying it, it means that they're going to incur losses in in their property. But I think what Thoreau might be saying is that those things aren't don't really matter when the circumstances are such that just existing that you're your body isn't safe when you're uh, living in these societies because the the state is going to trespass against your personal liberty uh, like on top of whatever they might be doing to your property and that's that's more important than than the property uh, so here we go. I have paid no poll tax for six years. I was put into a jail once on this account for one night, and as I stood considering the walls of solid stone, two or three feet thick, the door of wood and iron, a foot thick, and the iron grating which strained the light, I could not help being struck with the foolishness of that institution which treated me as if I were mere flesh and blood and bones to be locked up. I wondered that it should have concluded at length that this was the best use it could put to me, put me to, and had never thought to avail itself of my services in some way. I saw that if there was a wall of stone between me and my townspeople, there was still, there was a still more difficult one to climb or to or break through before they could get to be as free as I was. I did not for a moment feel confined, and the walls seemed a great waste of stone and mortar. I felt as if I, alone of all my townspeople, had paid my tax. They plainly did not know how to treat me, but behaved like persons who were underbred. In every threat and in every compliment there was a blunder, for they thought that my chief desire was to stand the other side of that stone wall. I could not help but smile to see how industriously they locked the door on my meditations, which followed them out again without let or hindrance, and they were really all that was dangerous. As they could not reach me, they had resolved to punish my body. Just as boys, if they cannot come at some person against whom they have a spite, will abuse his dog. I saw that the state was half-witted, that it was timid as a lone woman with, <laughs> with her silver spoons, and that it did not know its friends from its foes, and I lost all my remaining respect for it and pitied it. Thus a state never intentionally confronts a man's sen a person's sense, intellectual or moral, but only their body, their senses. 
It is not armed with superior wit or honesty, but with superior physical strength. I was not born to be forced. I will breathe after my own fashion. Let us see who is the strongest. What force has a multitude? They only can force me who obey a higher law than I. They force me to become like themselves. I do not hear of people being forced to live this way or that by masses of people. What sort of life were that to live? When I meet a government which says to me, your money or your life, why should I be in haste to give it my money? It may be in a great strait and not know what to do. I cannot help that. It must help itself, do as I do. It is not worth the while to snivel about it. I am not responsible for the successful working of the, of the machinery of society. I am not the son of the engineer. I perceive that when an acorn and a chestnut fall side by side, the one does not remain inert to make way for the other. But both obey their own laws and spring and grow and flourish as best they can. Till one, perchance, overshadows and destroys the other. If a plant cannot live according to its nature, it dies, and so a person. The night in prison was novel and interesting enough. The prisoners in their shirt sleeves were enjoying a chat and the evening air in the doorway when I entered. But the jailer said, come boys, it is time to lock up, and so they dispersed. And I heard the sound of their steps returning into the hollow apartments. My roommate was introduced to me by the jailer as a first-rate fellow and a clever man. When the door when the door was locked, he showed me where to hang my hat and how he managed matters there. The rooms were whitewashed once a month, and this one, at least, was the whitest, most simply furnished, and probably the neatest apartment in the town. He naturally wanted to know where I came from and what brought me there. And when I had told him, I asked him in my turn how he came there, presuming him to be an honest man, of course. And as the world goes, I believe he was. Why, said he, they accused me of burning a barn, but I never did it. As near as I could discover, he had probably gone to bed in a barn when drunk and smoked his, and smoked his pipe there and so a barn was burnt. He had the reputation of being a clever man, had been there some three months waiting for his trial to come on, and would have to wait as much longer, but he was quite domesticated and contented, since he got his board for nothing and thought that he was well treated. He occupied one window, and I the other, and I saw that, if one stayed there long, his principal business would be to look out the window. I had read, I had soon read all the tracks that were left there and examined where former prisoners had broken out and where a grate had been sawed off and heard the history of the various occupants of that room. For I found that even here there was a history and a gossip which never circulated beyond the walls of the jail. Probably this is the only house in the town where the ver where verses are composed, which afterward are which are afterward printed in circular form but not published. 
I was shown quite a long list of verses, which were composed by some young men who had been detected in an attempt to escape, who avenged themselves by singing them. I pumped my fellow prisoner as dry as I could, for fear I, for fear I should never see him again. But at length he showed me which was my bed, and left me to blow out the lamp. It was like traveling into a far country, such as I had never expected to behold, to lie there for one night. It seemed to me that I had I never had heard the town clock strike before, nor the eve evening sounds of the village for we slept with the windows open which were inside the grating it was to see my native village in the light of the middle ages and our conquered was turned into a rhine stream and visions of knights and castles passed before me they, they were the voices of old burghers that i heard in the street I was an involuntary spectator and auditor of whatever was done and set in the kitchen of the adjacent village inn, a wholly new and rare experience to me. It was a closer view of my native town. I was fairly inside of it. I never had seen its institutions before. This is one of its peculiar institutions, for it is a shire town. I began to comprehend what its inhabitants were about. In the morning our breakfasts were put through the hole in the door in small oblong tin pans made to fit and holding a pint of chocolate with brown bread and an iron spoon. When they called for the vessels again I was greed enough to return what bread I had left but my comrades seized it and said that I should lay that up for lunch or dinner. Soon after, he was let out to work at haying in a neighboring field, whither he went every day and would not be back till noon. So he bade me good day, saying that he doubted if he should see me again. When I came out of prison, for someone interfered and paid that tax, and I did, not, I did not perceive that great changes had taken place on the common, such as he observed who went in a youth and emerged a tiring and gray-headed man. Yet a change had to my eyes come over the scene, the town and state and country, greater than any that mere time could affect. I saw yet more distinctly the state in which I lived. I saw to what extent the people among whom I lived could be trusted as good neighbors and friends, that their friendship was for summer weather only, that they did not greatly propose to do right, that they were a distinct race from me by their prejudices and superstitions, as the China men and Malays are, that in their sacrifices to humanity they ran no risk not even to their property, that, after all, they were not so noble, but they treated the thief as he had treated them, and hoped, by a certain outward observance and a few prayers, and by walking in a particular straight, through useless, though useless path from time to time, to save their souls. This may be to judge my neighbors harshly, for I believe that many of them are not aware that they have such an institution as the jail in their village.
Uh, all right, and then that gets us close to about the 30-minute mark, so I think we'll stop the reading uh, for this moment right here and uh, do some reflection on the that last passage that was just read. I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think one of the main things that stands out to me is the detail in which Thoreau goes into talking about the jail and talking about his experience in the jail. And I think that that goes back towards the uh, a theme that has been concurrent in at least the Rock for Reading daily podcast episodes that we've done. And that is that the institution of mass incarceration, the institution of prison, the institution of jailing has been something that has commonly been used not to protect the community or to serve the community, but to up the to uphold the status quo, to uh to lock up people who have political differences or ideological differences that challenges the status quo. And even when we go back to the first book that we read uh, for the Rock for Reading Daily podcast being Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mami Abu-Jamal. Mami Abu-Jamal is writing that, excuse me, is writing that entire passage, that entire, excuse me, that entire book uh, from the confines of prison, from being on, from from being in prison since for the past 30 plus years. And so as we get to reading Thoreau and we're talking about Thoreau uh, and the experiences that he went through, and the very diametrically opposed to the experiences of Mami Abu-Jamal, but the commonality is that for their beliefs, they were uh, imprisoned. They became, they uh, their freedom was taken away from them. And I think that that is something that we have to keep at the forefront of our, our minds when we are struggling against mass incarceration, is that there's this myth or this... Uh, concept that most of the people in prison are violent offenders or most of the people in prison have committed murders or uh have have raped somebody have uh kidnapped somebody there's always that's always the pushback you get when you start speaking about issues of mass incarceration and there's very little conversation or very little talked about the amount of people who are simply in prison because of their political beliefs or in jail because of their political beliefs or on probation parole uh, a virtual prison because of their political beliefs and their ideological beliefs and that is something that has been prevalent since uh, the beginning of time and uh, Thoreau spoke about Rome and uh, I think that you know some of the stories that are in Biblical scriptures are, are very prevalent about people who are challenging the status quo in those ancient civilizations being imprisoned in jail for doing those things. So I just think that for me, that is one of the things that stands out from this passage here. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to add before we wrap this episode up? All right, so we'll wrap this episode up there. That gets us close to the 30-minute mark. want to encourage people to please go back and listen to previous episodes of Rock for Reading Daily and to be sure to listen to future episodes of Rock for Reading Daily. Uh, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present to people the opportunity to begin and to further their journey on this, in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. All right, we outside.